Deborah and I don't go see a, a lot of movies in, in the theater. I don't know how many of you like going to the theater. I, we like it, but you know, life's busy and, and we don't do that real often. But when we do, we've decided we kind of prefer the theaters that have the, the recliners in them. Have you been to these things? You know, the old, old style movie theaters had lots of, uh, you know, they called them theater seats. Uh, well, now th- they put probably a third as many seats in the theater with some of these things. But what you get is kind of this, this cushy recliner that has uh, controls on it so the feet go up and the head goes back and it's kind of nice. You get a reserved seat then, you know, you pick, you don't have to like jostle into the theater and try to get the seat that you want. It's really nice. But a while back, uh, I read a story about someone who is really just taking it to the next level here. Uh, this. <laughs> this is a theater in Switzerland where you can uh, purchase beds <laughs> instead of seats. Now you're, you're buying a bed. Here's a, a slightly different shot of it. Um, it. It's hard to see there, but part of the deal is you even get these little slippers. You get special slippers to wear while you're at the theater. Uh, this was met with a variety of responses on the internet. A lot of people said, oh, this is so great. Now, I should tell you, tickets cost just under $50 US. It's a lot, right? But it includes the slippers. You get to wear the slippers. I don't think you get to take them home, but you get to wear the slippers. And evidently, it also includes uh, food and drink. I, I, I don't know if it's you know all you can eat, food and drink, but you know, it includes some other stuff. But a lot of people said, boy, doesn't that look great? You know, you can adjust the, the, the lean of the head. There's a nice blanket there. The theater promised, I know what a lot of you are thinking, the theater says we change the sheets between every movie showing. You're not, you know, sharing sheets with the last person who ate garlic and onions for lunch. You know, it, it's, you know so everything's nice and clean and, and sanitized. There were a lot of other people, though, that had a very different reaction. Reactions like, I have a hard enough time staying awake at the movie, (laughs) right? (laughs) Somebody said, if I watch a movie at home or watch TV at home in my bed, I won't see any of it. I'll fall asleep and then I wake up, you know, three episodes later or something, right? You ever been there? This is tantamount to paying $50 to take a nap. But slippers, (laughs) you get nice slippers. I don't know, there's a fine line between uh, going too far and being too comfortable maybe. I want you to think about that as you uh, grab your Bibles this morning and turn to Joshua chapter 10. Joshua chapter 10. And I'm going to dive right in because we've got a lot of ground to cover this morning. So let's get into this. Joshua chapter 10, verse 1. As soon as Adonai Zedek king of Jerusalem. We can stop right there and say, yes, that Jerusalem. That's, you know, remember, Jerusalem as a city exists, but it's not, it doesn't belong to the Israelites quite yet. So this king of Jerusalem heard how Joshua had captured Ai and devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them. Stop. We talked about this last week. We looked at this last week. These Gibeonites came. 
under deception. And they came to the nation of Israel and, and said, hey, we have heard that you are going to destroy everybody in this land, but we're not from this land. We live in this other place. It's really far away. You've never heard of it. You know, and they wear these raggedy clothes and worn out bags and sandals and, you know, everything was all worn out. And they deceive the Israelites. The Israelites fail to uh, inquire of the Lord in all of this. They just say, well, okay, sounds good to us. And then they find out. So they've made this this treaty with the Gibeonites. And that's what's being referred to. This is part of what the king of Jerusalem has now heard. He's heard what happened to Jericho. He's heard what happened to Ai. And now these Gibeonites have made a treaty with the Israelites. And this is a problem because as we see the next verse, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai, and all its men were warriors. This is an interesting little notation. Last week, we may have been left with the the thought that, well, these Gibeonites must have been kind of weak. You know, they were scared. This is why they came and they made this treaty. Well, now we're told that's really not the case. It was actually a pretty mighty city filled with warriors. And so that tells you something about what they thought about God and what God was doing in this land, doesn't it? I mean, I want to give credit where credit is due. <laughs> and so they've made this treaty. Now the king of Jerusalem, Adonai Zedek, is, is worried about that. So verse 3, Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent Jehoham, king of Hebron, Piram, king of Jarmuth, Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, come up to me, And help me, and let us strike Gibeon, for it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. You see where they're at here? These scoundrels? We're all... I mean, our backs are against the wall here. We're in the fight of our lives. And some of our neighbors went and made a treaty with the enemy. Guys, we got we to gotta do something about this. And so he rounds up this alliance, these five kings from southern, the, the southern Canaan area there. And they come and they go up against Gibeon to punish Gibeon for this thing that they have done for daring to make a treaty with the enemy, which makes good sense, you know, again, militarily, strategically. So here they go. Verse six, and the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal saying, do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us for all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. I'm going to put up a map. I've said a couple of times that a map might be helpful. I think this morning a map in particular might be extra helpful. So uh, you can see some of these cities here. Here's Jericho right there. Here's Ai right there. Uh, Shechem, which is where they, they went and did, this is in the region of where they went to do that sacrifice the, the religious pilgrimage, so you can see how far away. But they've really set up camp here in uh, Gilgal, which is just east-northeast of Jericho. And here 
Now my laser pointer is not going to work. Is Gibeon. Okay? So Gilgal is where their camp is. Gibeon is here. And when it says he sent for Joshua, he, they probably sent a runner, you know, a, a literal runner <laughs> to go run with this message. And he says, don't, I love this, the phrasing, don't relax your hand. Isn't that good? Well, it's poetic. Please don't relax your hand. Come to us quickly and help us and, and save us and help us because these kings are, you know, at our gates. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. Uh, many people have asked, was he required to do this? You know, sometimes you have a, a, a treaty that in part requires you to come to the aid of, of somebody who you've made this treaty with. A lot of other scholars have pointed out that's probably not necessarily the case because when they made the treaty, remember, they think that these Gibeonites are from a far off land. And so they wouldn't have made a treaty that bound them to go to some you know, crazy far off place to go and help the Gibeonites. I don't know that that's necessarily why they've come. But I think part of the reason that they come is this, uh, you know, maybe some sense of wanting to help, but it's also what we see in the next verse, verse 8. The Lord said to Joshua, see, they have inquired of the Lord in this case, and the Lord said to Joshua, do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. Verse 9, so Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Uh, it says march up. When we say to go up to a place, we are often thinking north, you know, right, on a map. You go up on the map. In, in biblical language, they're usually talking about elevation, you know, so you might look at this and say, well, he's kind of going to the, the west and even a little bit down from Gilgal. It's a, a climb in elevation, though, many archaeologists have said, of around 4,000 feet. And this is 15 to maybe 25. You see a lot of question marks up on the map there because it's hard to place some of these ancient cities that no longer exist, but 15 to maybe as much as 25 miles away with a 4,000-foot elevation gain. And they travel all night. This is a hard march. They, they hoof it. I mean, they run hard to get there. But they go through the night, and they surprise. They, can't, they come upon them suddenly. It's, it's possible that they, they even come somewhat before sunrise. You know, while these armies encamped are still sleeping. They've sort of besieged this city. But maybe they're still asleep, not yet ready to go. And all of a sudden, here are the Israelites. And verse 10 says, The Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon, and then chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makedah. You see those words up there, those names up there? There's even a, it's a pass, which is why you see lower Beth Horon and upper Beth Horon. And so they go from these heights in upper Beth Horon down through this ravine, through this pass, down to lower Beth Horon. And the Israelites chase them all the way. And verse 11 says, And as they fled before Israel, while they were going down the ascent of Beth Haran, 
the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with the sword. Isn't that something else? So they come on them and they surprise them. And the Bible says they struck a great blow. But even so, these hailstones, and there's been a lot of debate about this. Was it actually hail or or was it like rocks or or stones? I'm not sure and I don't know that it matters a ton. Wherever we land, this is a supernatural, miraculous occurrence, yes? I mean, you do see in certain parts of the world, I mean, even here, you know, we've had instances where the weatherman has said, listen, you might want to get your cars undercover because there are going to be hailstones that are big. This one's going to, it's going to do some damage, right? I mean, you hear occasionally about, you know, softball-sized hailstones even, but it's really rare. And here God supernaturally causes these, these stones to rain down from heaven and do so much damage that it kills more of the enemy than the Israelites had killed with their swords. It's incredible. And so they're chasing hard after this retreating army. There doesn't seem to be much of a, a battle at all. And at that time, verse 12... Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel. And he said in the sight of Israel, Son, stand still at Gibeon and moon in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jashar? The book of Jashar, just so you know, is a collection of Hebrew uh, poetry and songs. Uh, It's extra biblical, but it was written uh, to help praise the Lord and and to commemorate some of these things. The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since when the Lord heeded the voice of a man for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. But then we're going to see there's a bit more to this story. I love that phrase that that the sun did not hurry. That comes from this thinking in the Middle East at this time that, that the sun was, you know, unstoppable. It was often thought to be like a strong running man. There was just no stopping the sun from crossing the sky. Now, we know, of course, uh, that the sun wasn't moving across the sky. It was the earth rotating. But what does that tell you about this miracle? That the earth stopped rotating. Or at very least, slowed down. It's hilarious. There's a lot of discussion about this, too. Uh, Does it really mean that it stopped, stopped? and then started moving later? Or does it mean that it slowed way down so that it just took a whole day to say, I don't know. But either way, this is incredible. Isn't it? Please say yes. (laughs) And there are weird things that you think about. Like somebody pointed out, one of the, the, the commentators that I read said, just think about this. You know, based on, let's say that, that God just stopped the rotation of the earth so that the sun stopped, right? Why didn't all of the oceans and the seas slosh, right? I mean, think about that. It's rotating at a certain speed. If you just stop it, 
all the water that's in the tub, that didn't happen. But you know, God is God. I mean, he can, if he can stop the earth or slow down the spin of the earth, he can certainly keep the seas from sloshing and causing all sorts of weird damage too, can't he? This miraculous event says that God was surely fighting for Israel. There's sort of a denouement to all this story. These five kings, verse 16, fled and they hid themselves in the cave at Machedah. And it was told to Joshua, the five kings have been found hidden in the cave at Machedah. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. But don't stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies. Keep pursuing your enemies. Attack the rear guard. Don't let them enter their cities. And you can see again up here on our map, all of those, those names of cities that were mentioned from this, this confederation of kings. You know, they're all kind of down to the south. They're, they're, they're trying to flee back home. They're trying to flee back to their cities. And Joshua says, keep chasing them. Keep pounding that rear guard. Uh, we're here to, to destroy these armies, you know. So don't let them, if you, if you can, don't let them get back home. Uh, the Lord your God has given them into your hand. Verse 20. When Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished striking them with a great blow until they were wiped out, and when the remnant that remained of them had entered into the fortified cities, then all the people returned safe to Joshua in the camp at Machedah. Not a man moved his tongue against any of the people of Israel. <laughs> I love that. You get this king from Jerusalem that starts all this, but now nobody has a word to say. You know. And what follows is there's a description of the execution of these five kings. Once all of this is done, then they take the stones off and they bring the kings out. There's some weirdness about uh, putting their feet on their necks, which might strike us as weird, but this is very, very common in the Middle East at this time. Uh, this is depicted in artwork uh, uh, from Egypt all the way up to the Assyrian kingdom. Uh, this is a symbol of, of complete dominance. You know, to, to, to put your, your foot on your enemy's neck seems like kind of a strange thing to do because they're just about to execute them anyway. But it's like a photo op, you know. <laughs> and I want to remind you that this is for the people of Israel to see, really. Uh, you know, because everybody else has run away or they've been slain on the battlefield. And so they execute those kings. And then we see at the end of the chapter, verse 29, then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Machedah to Libna and fought against Libna. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it, and he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. You can, again, I've left the map up there so you can, you know, glance up and kind of see where these cities are, bearing in mind the question marks, but you know. Then Joshua and all Israel, verse 31, Joshua and all Israel with him passed from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it as he had done to Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon and they laid siege to it and fought against it, and they captured it on that day and struck it with the edge of the sword. 
And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. And they fought against it and they captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Eglon. And he devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir. This is curious. Debir was the name of one of the kings, the king from Eglon. And so it's tough to know where this came from. But it seems as if there's another city called Debir that is maybe unconnected or I don't know, connected to the king Debir from Eglon. I know, it's confusing. But he went to Debir and fought against it and he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and its king. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country and the Negeb and the lowland and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen as far as Gibeon. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp of Gilgal. Now what we've just seen summed up is the southern campaign. You might remember that I said in in military terms, they're sort of a central campaign where they cut from east to west across the land. Then there's a southern campaign, and then we're going to see a northern campaign. And this is the description of that southern campaign. But incidentally, it's all kicked off. I mean, they're going to do it. But it's all kicked off by some of these southern kings banding together and coming up against Gibeon. I love this because we see again, again, God's mighty hand at work. How many times there does it say that God did this, that the Israelites were successful because of God? We see this fantastic scene with with the sun stop, you know, because as they're chasing these peoples. I mean, I, I imagine it's possible maybe even some of the Israelites could hear some of the, the, the fleeing kings and their armies just, you know, praying for nighttime. And I think it might be worth pointing out here that so many of these tribes, so many of these peoples had as one of their gods the sun. Hmm? I mean, is it possible that as Israel could even hear them praying to their God, the sun, hurry up, you know, go down, because once it's dark, then we'll get, you know, a reprieve and we can, we can keep running away. And then the sun stops. And instead of darkness, you have this whole extra span of daylight. Huh. I mean, what a miracle. God sending these hailstones against them. Uh, Even before that, God, as the Israelites come upon them, throwing them into confusion. You know, we've seen that in other places, but throwing them into confusion so that they're, you know, scattered around and bumping into each other like a bunch of dopes and, you know. Who won these battles? Yeah, I'm glad to hear you say that. (laughs) And the text says that. That God 
won these battles. That God did this. It's commemorated for them in their songs, in their writings. You know, that Joshua says this before all the people. He understands well what this is about. And from the outset of this campaign, God says to them, don't be afraid of these people. I'm giving them to you. I'm giving them into your hand. And so, go. But I want to remind you of a couple of things throughout here. And the first is just, I pointed this out before, but I don't want this to be lost on us. Verse 7 says, Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And verse 9 says, Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. Remember what kind of a march I told you that was? It was a 4,000 foot climb over the course of at least 15 miles through the night when they're supposed to be sleeping. Do you know what hard work that is? And I mean, it's easy maybe to say, well, we're more accustomed to desk jobs and you know, culturally we just have some more lethargy than they used to. They were used to it. No, come on, this is a hard, hard march. This was hard work. When they, when they get there, and they, they start this battle and they start chasing them. And then at a certain point, Joshua says, stop the sun. And the sun stops. God stops the sun. And so what do the Israelites do? They keep fighting. They keep running. They keep pressing. They keep working, chasing. Don't you think they're tired at this point? Wouldn't you be drop dead exhausted at this point? And then the whole description of that, that campaign at the end of the, the chapter, starting in verse 29, all of these cities listed, and even an extra city in there from somebody that came up to try and help again. And they just they keep going from one to the next to the next to the next. There seems to be no rest. They they just keep at it. So let me ask you again, who won these battles? Thank you. Still God. That's still the answer, yes? But what I also want you to see, what really jumped out at me about this, is that they don't just laze back and just sort of let God do it in the absence of them doing anything. They don't look for a movie theater with beds in it, you know? Now, if you want to go to a movie theater with beds in it, I'm not, that's, I'm, that's fine. I'm not making fun of you. But you know what I mean? Maybe there's a time and a place. I think for a people who have become so accustomed to seeing God's miraculous work, it might have been easy that when that message initially came from Gibeon, hey, we're in trouble, especially because I don't really believe that they were under like contractual obligation to help them. And when that message came from Gibeon, they could have said, well, why don't we just pray about it? We'll let God do it. 
We're going to lay here in bed. It's been a tough go. I mean, that whole business with Jericho, that whole business with AI and then AI again, and, and then we took a really long trip up to the, the region of Shechem up there. I mean, it's been an emotional roller coaster. And frankly, this isn't about us. You know, God is doing this, so we'll just sort of let God do it. No. They strap on their shoes and their gear and their weaponry, and they run all night long, 4,000 feet up in the snow. No, okay, not in the snow. <laughs> they, they push hard, and they watch God work, and they understand that God is working, but they don't take that as an excuse to not work, to not labor, to just lay in a bed and go to sleep watching a movie, you know. They don't do that. You want to turn back to our passage from Scripture reading in Philippians. We see this same pattern. Where Paul, the Apostle Paul, in writing this letter to the church in Philippi, I mean, he has a very clear sense of God's grace, doesn't he? He has a very clear sense of God's work, of God's hand, of God's provision. He has a very clear sense because he wrote about it in his letter to the Ephesians. That he was saved by grace, by God's grace, through nothing other than his faith. Not of his works, so that he couldn't boast. And no man... No woman, no child who has salvation can boast because we recognize it's all because of God's grace. Paul has a fully formed notion of that. He absolutely gets that. And even in this passage in Philippians, he, he has been expressing that, that this is all about Jesus Christ. And yet, he says... Verse 13, brothers, I don't consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul does this. Ah! Can you advance that slide? We don't need the map anymore. Paul does this a lot, where, where he uses the language of athletics even. You know, you think of a runner here. When you see people run, you know, professionally in a race, you tend not to see them looking around at, you know, birds and flowers and Noticing the signs and, hey, I know my family's here and they were going to hold a sign up. I, where are they? You know, they run. At least they don't win if they run like that. They run hard. They run with their eye on the direction that they're going. And Paul uses this imagery to say, this is how I'm pressing on. It's even as he has finished giving Jesus Christ all the glory and all the honor and all of the credit for his salvation, for everything that has happened in his life, for the fact that he has considered everything else rubbish, garbage, filth, compared to Jesus Christ. 
But what he does not say is, therefore, I'm going to put myself in a nice comfy bed and get a nice pair of slippers and some food and some drink and just, ah. No, he uses this language that is so evocative of what the nation of Israel must have done on that arduous trip from from the, from uh, uh, Gilgal up to Gibeon, where they go all night, they work, they push, they understand God is really doing this, God is behind this, but they don't take that as an excuse to be lazy, to stop working. The call of the Bible to you and I is to recognize that we are never saved because of our our own work, our own righteousness. I don't have any of my own righteousness to speak of. That has no merit when it comes to my salvation. I mean, what do I have that I can come and offer to God and say, see God, look at my righteousness. I mean, it's God who is righteousness and holiness. What do I have to bring? What did Paul have to bring? And yet he still says, this grace, this power of God exercised on my behalf doesn't mean for me that I just get to recline in a bed and be served and not not do anything. He frequently talks about this pushing, this striving, this training even. As he says, I'm going to finish this race hard. I'm going to finish it well. This is our call. Not to just be lazy and receive our salvation and then just put our hands behind our head and say, oh, this is nice. Did you get a load of these slippers? How nice. It's so good to just relax here. Paul says, no, I'm pushing, I'm fighting. And then he just ends up boldly by saying, you should imitate me. This is our call. We recognize the power of God, the power of God in our salvation, that we are saved purely by his grace, that simply by putting faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, hallelujah, that we're saved completely. There's nothing else by which we can boast, any of us. Even so, we are called to run the race, to fight the fight. We're not called to just look for comfort and slippers and food and drink. We're called to push, to work, to train, to strive for that finish line to do the things that we're instructed to do in God's word, to spend time in God's word as part of our training, to spend time in prayer, communing with him, to develop that relationship, to spend time preaching the gospel, this beautiful, marvelous gospel by which, as we've just said, the people this last week just got saved again. Hallelujah! That is so beautiful. It's such a beautiful message. 
And there are too many people that still need it to work, to push, to fight, to strive. That's our call. Not because it earns us merit with God, but because we love God so much. Because we are so invested in his work, in his call, in his ministry, that we want to push, that we want to serve, that we want to work to push for that finish line. God's grace is not an opportunity for you and I to just find a nice bed. God's grace by which we are saved is an opportunity for us to praise him, to thank him, but then to push, to run, to pour our energy into his work, to pour our time and energy into the study of his word, into our time with him, into service of of our fellow believers and of the world around us, into a love that is supernatural and makes no sense to push, to run with our eyes on the finish line. That is our call. Let's not let God's grace be an excuse for us to be lazy. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for this grace. For your power. Thank you for your miraculous work. We don't just see that exercise in the Old Testament. We see it now, God. We see it all the time. But God, we don't want to let your power and your grace be an excuse for us to just recline and be comfortable in a nice pair of slippers while we watch a movie. God, help us to be a people who, as we recognize your power, who push, who are fighting the fight, running the race, striving, yearning with our eyes on the finish line so that we may finish well. And Father, even as we celebrate new life in Jesus Christ, we recognize there may be people here with us today whether in the room with us physically or watching from we don't even maybe know where, who might not know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, that they would have new life in Christ this day simply by recognizing that salvation is a free gift from you, that by your grace, through faith, we can be saved. We won't have anything to boast about. You did it all. And all we need to do is receive that free gift. And Father, if there's anyone here today who hasn't yet received that, we pray you draw them, pull them, forcefully move them, powerfully, that they may know that this salvation is theirs just for the taking because of you and your power. Thank you, God. We love you. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.